Mark chapter 10, verses 1 and 12. This is the same exact passage we looked at last week, but today we're going to be looking at part 2. And so I want to read the passage again so that it is fresh in our minds as we begin to study God's Word this morning together. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Read with me. And he left there, and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as it was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him and asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray. Father, we come to you again and we come to your word believing that your word is life. That your word speaks truth to us. That it speaks what is good that it speaks what is unchanging. And so, God, we ask for you, like a surgeon, to be doing work on our hearts because the reality is, as we come to your word, there's parts that are hard. And so we ask for a willingness to understand. We ask for an understanding of Jesus' words here. And we ask that you show us how to apply them to our lives this morning in a way that honors you and brings you glory, in a way that gives us fullness of life as you intended. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we begin this morning with a part two of a two-part series on Jesus teaching about divorce and marriage. And if you missed last week, just give you a very, very quick summary What Jesus did here in the first few verses was he pointed us back to what we might think of first principles. He pointed us back to foundational truth. He pointed us to the marriage ordinance in creation. And so if we're going to understand divorce, we need to understand first, it's not a debate about divorce. It was really just coming to an understanding of why did God give us the gift of marriage. And so this is where Jesus starts. And the, the truth is that there is no way in just two 35 or 40 minute sermons we are able to cover everything that should be said about marriage or divorce. And so what we say here is in many ways a primer, it's, it's preliminary. So what we want to do is, is ground ourselves with biblical truths and biblical principles that will help us think about the big picture, to help us understand marriage 
and to help us understand what Jesus is saying here about specifically divorce. And the reason we also broke up the sermon is that last week, like I said, we, we wanted to go back and just understand what was Jesus referring to uh, when he pointed these, the Pharisees back to Genesis. And so we looked at God's purpose and plan for marriage. We looked at the, as, as God's good and permanent plan for one man and one woman for one lifetime to be committed in this marital covenant. And this morning what I want to do is take a look specifically and dive into verses 10 and 12. That's the area we didn't explore last week where Jesus is going to say that whoever uh, divorces his wife and enters another marriage commits adultery. So we want to dive down deeper into this. We want to take a look at what does this practically mean and how do we practically apply it. I want to begin this morning with a story from my own life about a time where I had the challenge in front of me of speaking an honest word, but recognizing that conversation might cost me a relationship. Back when I was younger, I was fresh out of college, and I was working a job uh, in the state of Tennessee. I had a, a co-worker, I would say a friend, not a close friend, and we had worked together for about two years. It had become Christmas time, and for Christmas, I returned home to my family, which is just basically driving across the mountains. We lived in East Tennessee. In the middle was the beautiful Smoky Mountains, and I would drive across the Smoky Mountains from East Tennessee to go spend Christmas with my family in western North Carolina, the Smokies, God's country. Well, as I was preparing for Christmas, you can imagine that my heart was not focused on all about work. But as my Mother and father, myself, and I think it was my sister, we decided to go Christmas shopping. The most, it, it's the, what do you do during Christmas? You go to the mall. You get, it's decorated. There's music. You're buying gifts. And we had shopped our little hearts out, and we went to the uh, little food court. And we were having a meal, and I looked up, and I couldn't believe what I saw. I saw my friend's wife with another man. I knew her, she didn't recognize me, and she probably thought she'd gone across the state line and she's at another place. She was enjoying a time, it was a, it was a very romantic time as I looked at her and this other man interacting. And everything for me stopped. All the, the, the joy of Christmas, all the excitement, the music, I had a pit in my stomach that just ruined that night for me because my world stopped and I recognized I have an unbelievably hard conversation to have when I get home. And as I left that place the whole weekend, I couldn't stop thinking about what do I do when honesty, you know, will hurt. I was fortunate, and my brother also knew that the gentleman that we worked with had a much longer relationship with him, and I relayed the story. I said, John, I, I, don't, I don't know what to do. And I said, and also, I need to be 100% sure. This is a conversation you can't have without checking your facts. In my mind, it was her. I knew it was her, but was it someone that looked like her? 
And so my brother said, there is a gentleman that we knew that she had a relationship with in the past. He works at this gas station. It's, on this, it's in this county. It's in this place. He said, here's the best way to know if you saw what you saw. He said, you drive out there, you go to that gas station, you get gas, and you find out if that guy who works there is the same guy that you saw. And he says, if it is, you know for sure. And I did. And with fear, I walked in that store, and I recognized it's the same guy. What do you do when you know that the truth is good, but the truth can hurt? And what do you do if you call yourself a friend if you would be dishonest with somebody and hide something behind their back? Something that could cause even greater harm to a marriage or to their children if I hid it. And so after praying, I approached my friend and I shared with him what I had seen. I didn't accuse, I didn't do anything other than than tell him This is what I have seen. And because I love you, I just want to let you know. There was no argument. There was no debate going back and forth. There was no offer of what to do from me. It was simply sharing, this is what I saw. I want you to know because I love you as a friend. And I'll tell you, it cost me that relationship. It was never the same. It was an awkward place to go to work. I knew that I had come between him and his wife, and I knew that I bore the brunt of sharing the truth. I knew that it wasn't believed. The reason I share that story is because there's times in life where as, as much as we want everything to be just cut and dry, black and white and easy, that we actually have to have hard conversations. And in fact, you will find out that a relationship that can't handle hard conversations, as we've said in the past, isn't built on a foundation that is going to last. A, found, a, a, a relationship where you can't share truth because it'll be seen as offensive is not a true relationship. It's just a surface casual acquaintance. I share that story because one of the things that we see again and again and again as we come to Scripture is God's Word just speaks honestly with us. Knowing that the reality of this world and the reality of our lives is that we have all experienced sin, we've all experienced this hurt, and just like every other area, sin can affect a marriage. And so when the Bible speaks honestly about sin, it may But I tell you, the reason God speaks honestly is because for God not to speak honestly about sin would mean that because God was afraid to hurt our feelings that he didn't tell us what was honestly the best way for us to live. God speaks truth so that we can build our lives on a firm foundation. God doesn't tell us what we want to hear. God doesn't tell us anything other than the truth. And the truth is always good. And the beauty of God telling us the truth is God doesn't change. God doesn't change. 
Have you ever had a conviction or made a stance only to change it later? Only to be proven wrong that that it was wrong or proven later that it was wrong? I have. It's humble pie. All of us have had convictions that we thought for sure. All of us have had that conversation or that argument with somebody else that we thought for sure we were right. We put our foot down. We're willing to put our cards in the middle of the ring and risk be, hey, this is what I believe. And then guess what? Because we are not God and things change and we don't have perfect understandings and we don't take perfect stands based upon convictions because we oftentimes can get things wrong. Is that, yeah, we can be wrong and we can hurt. The difference is that God is never wrong. God tells us the truth and the truth is always good and God does not change. So let me begin everything that we say today with communicating to you in the most loving way possible is God simply will tell you the truth. And that's what Jesus does here. And God tells you the truth because the truth is right, the truth is good, the truth will never change, and it always points you towards the path of life. Always. Always. God never tells us the truth to point the finger and to condemn which is how we feel, right? When, when we, we read the scriptures and it differs maybe, or it, we've been in a situation where we've experienced that sin, it might sting. But the point is, God never shows us or is honest with us or speaks the truth to condemn. God always speaks the truth in order to point us the way to life, to point us the way to salvation, and to point us to the way that life works best. So let me tell you our outline for this morning. There's four things you want to do today as we preach on the second part of divorce, and we want to just kind of dig into what's practical. Last week, we looked at what's foundational. We looked at first principles. Today, I want to talk about kind of practically how do we see, understand, and what do we do after divorce. So in verses 10 to 12, which is where we, did, we picked up or left off last week, it's where we'll pick up today, I just want to ask the question, what does Jesus mean? What does he mean by this saying that if you divorce your wife, you'll commit adultery with the next person that you marry? Secondly, I want to take a look at the theology of marriage and divorce. This morning, I want to walk away, you should walk away, having just a very clear overview of five passages of Scripture that I think will shape this understanding of marriage and divorce that are going to be practical for us. The third thing we want to do is I want to take a look at some biblical grounds for divorce. We want to dive deeper. And there's two things that are explicit in Scripture. We'll talk about that. And there's one thing that I would say, or there's several things that might be implicit. And lastly, we're going to take a look, is what if divorce is part of my story? What if it's part of my story? What if it's touched me? What if I was the offender? What if I was a part of somebody breaking the marriage covenant on me? What do I do? So we want to take a look at practically what if divorce is part of my story and what do we do? So let's begin this morning. I'm going to take a look at verses 10 and 12. Let me reread them again. Mark 10, verses 10 and 12. This is the tail end of Jesus' conversation uh, with, uh, about the Pharisees asking, and now you can see that they've actually changed locations. They're at the house. This is only his disciples asking him about this matter. It says, and in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband 
and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, we want to unpack this because we want to walk away knowing what does this practically mean? What is Jesus actually saying? And the first thing I want to just point us to is something that is assumed, but maybe you don't assume it from reading this passage. When we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are four accounts of Jesus' life. And when Mark and Luke relay this story, they both relay the story with what we called an assumed exception. We'll get to that in just a second. Matthew actually tells us the exception. It's in the text. And to fully understand what Jesus is saying, I want to read Matthew 19, verses 3 to 9. Now, it's going to cover a lot of the same story. It is the same story. But you're going to see in verse 9 something that is known as the exception clause. And it's important that we know this before we go into unpacking this verse. Matthew 19, verses 3 to 9. It says this, same story. Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command us to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And here is the exception clause that Matthew adds that Mark does not refer to. And it says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. All right, do you see this word, except? So we see that this is, in a sense, assumed. Every Jew knew that there was one specific reason that God had stated in the Old Testament that provided a grounds for breaking the marital covenant, and it was marital unfaithfulness. Now, you probably actually didn't even need me to point you to the exception clause because you all know this because you know the story of Jesus and you know the story of Joseph and Mary. When we uh, learn the story of Jesus, we, we learn that after Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant, what does he do? He's going to invoke the exception clause. And Joseph is going, the, the scriptures say he was going to quietly put her away. What is that talking about? Joseph was going to divorce Mary. They were still actually betrothed. But Joseph was going to put her away quietly. Why? Because in the Old Testament, you specifically have a provision made for when a spouse spouse is unfaithful, that you have the ability to enact a divorce. Now, the reason that was gracious is because Joseph, in a sense, the Old Testament punishment for adultery was to be killed, to be stoned for the man or the woman. We see that uh, gradually there's... There's grace shown, and this divorce, the certificate of divorce would be written, and a partner would be put away. Quiet. This is Joseph's intent. So you actually all knew the exception clause. Maybe you didn't define it. Maybe you didn't think about it that way. But if you know the story of Mary and Joseph, then you know a very particular case of Old Testament being applied to New Testament, of Joseph going to uh, 
divorced his wife or put Mary away in a quiet way that would allow her to continue and would allow also him to move forward to remarry. So, I want to make clear that when we come to verses 10, 11, and 12, when Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, Jesus is referring to anything apart from adultery. Or the, the word actually here is uh, porneia, or, or sexual immorality, breaking the marriage covenant through some type of sexual immorality. And so Jesus is saying, very specifically, that if you were to end your marriage or to, to pursue a divorce without legitimate reasons, then the next marriage that you enter will be adultery. Let me make this clear. So I have four points. If a man divorces his wife and marries another, apart from sexual immorality, that's the exception clause, he commits adultery in that new marriage. That's specifically what Jesus is saying. Secondly, if a woman divorces her husband and marries another man, apart from sexual immorality, once again, the exception clause, she commits the sin of adultery in that new marriage. What about the innocent party? Right, so there's, there's a couple opportunities. Either both were unfaithful to each other, and they would both be guilty. What about the innocent party? Well, Jesus doesn't spell it out, but it was very clear the innocent party is free to remarry. They are not the offending party. So the innocent spouse, the one that was faithful, if a, a divorce is pursued, is free to remarry. The fourth thing is that the offending party is not permitted to remarry. And you see the reason why. Because if they remarry, they commit adultery. So as I told you earlier, Jesus simply unpacks God's plan for marriage from Genesis. God's plan for marriage was one man, one woman for one lifetime. In fact, he blessed that in Genesis and says after he uh, creates Eve to be Adam's partner and to walk alongside this life together, God blessed it and says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And so we have God's blessing on the marriage union. There's a question that might come up. If that's the interpretation, then one, is this a one-time sin? Because let's be honest, all of us know people in situations where they've been divorced and been remarried. There's, there's not a church that isn't affected by this, right? And so, are, Sam, are, are you preaching condemnation? No. We're unpacking what Jesus said. And we're trying to understand it. And we're applying exactly the rules that Jesus gives. But we all know, here's, here's my life, here's my marriage, and here's church. It's messy. And so there's some of you sitting in here who've been impacted by divorce. And so is this an ongoing sin? This, this sin of getting remarried? Or this sin of uh, once you're in marriage, what Jesus says is adultery? Let me just be honest about this. The scriptures don't speak 
to this specifically. So I can't give you a chapter in a text. The first thing we always do when we come to the scriptures is, what does the scriptures say about the scriptures? What does God say in other parts that would clearly speak into this? I can't give you a specific text or verse that would say, this is how we unpack this. But I think I can give you some biblical principles. And the first is this. I think it's very clear that with any sin, until you seek repentance and ask God for forgiveness, you are living out of fellowship with God. Think about this. If I offended my wife and I did something that was, was grossly sinful against her, but I can just kept living in the marriage, not talking about it, not addressing it, just thinking, you know what, I'll just start loving her and act like it never happened. You've been married or you've been in a relationship. Does that actually work? No. You, you, you basically fake the relationship. You're nice to each other and you're, you might enjoy parts, but if you commit a gross sin against somebody else, the reality is there's only one way to fix it. That you actually have a, a face-to-face conversation, you admit you're part of the wrong, and you ask for forgiveness, and you start over again. That's the only way I know that life works. And the reason that works is because that's Biblical. When we sin, God invites us to admit our sin, to confess our sin, and then to receive his forgiveness. So here's what I would say about this specific situation. Let's say somebody commits uh, marital unfaithfulness. That relationship ends in divorce. We have one spouse who's innocent. She remarries. We have the spouse to the offending party who remarries. Biblically speaking, the Bible says that person commits adultery, and so does the person who, who marries them. That's the Bible. What do we do? Do they always live in adultery? Here's what I believe the scriptures would teach us. No. That person comes to God, they ask for forgiveness of their sins, they admit that, God, I recognize your plan for marriage, I recognize your good plan for marriage, I broke that, I didn't keep it, I violated it, and now I'm asking for forgiveness. I believe that once you have asked for forgiveness, then God will forgive that sin of adultery. But let's not erase it. Let's not redefine it because we don't like the fact of what it says. It says if you've, you've broken a marriage in a way that God does not ordain, that you have sinned and you will commit adultery with that next person. What do we do about that? Well, I think we, like anything, we agree with God about what he says. We ask for his forgiveness, and then we move on. And here's what I would advise. Stay in that next marriage. Be faithful to that marriage. And that's another question. Should, should I pursue a divorce? Should I get rid of my, old, my partner in return? No. You stay in that marriage, and you try to work on being covenant faithful in that marriage. Now, that's just trying to put some practical application to what we see Biblical. So what was straight from Scripture? Straight from Scripture was verses 10, 11, and 12, where Jesus says, if you divorce your wife or if the wife divorces her husband for reasons that are not the exception clause, then you commit adultery. Then we try to unpack that practically. What I would say is seek forgiveness and then begin again and begin to walk out God's plan for marriage. Now, 
I want to move on to the next point because I want us to form just a theology of marriage. I'm going to give you five quick verses. You can write these down because this is what I believe needs to shape your theology of marriage and divorce. Number one, God created marriage and his plan for marriage was a permanent union. That's Genesis 2.24. What God has joined together, let not man separate. That's where we got to begin. We build our foundation of understanding marriage based upon what God has said in Genesis. Number two, God created and blessed marriage as a living picture of the marriage between his son, Jesus, and his church, the bride. This is Ephesians 5, 31 to 32. So marriage is actually a picture of something bigger than just you and your wife. It tells us in 5, 31 to 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Once again, this is a repeat of Genesis. And it says, this mystery is profound. I am saying it refers to Christ and his church. The second thing you need to understand about marriage is it's a picture of Jesus and his church. This is why it's so significant. Just think about this. Think about what would happen to our salvation if Jesus could divorce his church. None of us would be saved. None of us would have any hope. If Jesus would stop being faithful to us because we were unfaithful to him, we would be sunk. And so the picture that God gives us of marriage is this. I will never stop loving. I will never stop pursuing. I will never break covenant. I have laid down my life for you, and I have invited you into relationship with me. That's a beautiful picture of marriage. It's a, it's a picture of permanency. The only reason any of us have the hope of heaven is because we cling on to that promise that marriage, if I understand it correctly, is actually a It's the picture of Jesus and his church. And Jesus laid his life down. He spilled his blood to purchase the church. And now that he has purchased that church, Jesus will never be covenantally unfaithful to his wife. He will love her. Number three, the divorce does violence to God's good plan for marriage and parenting. This is from Malachi. And that word violence is not my own. It comes straight from the text. Malachi 2 to 15 to 16. God is, in a sense, speaking with his prophet Malachi. This is at the end of the Old Testament. It's talking about the relationship of Israel to God. And more specifically, it's beginning to talk about the, the way that Israel has been, uh, the men have been marrying the women of foreign tribes. Committing a gross sin by covenanting themselves with people who were not a part of God's people. And there's a conversation going on. We pick up in the middle, and Malachi 2, 15 to 16, it says this. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? By the way, is that an awesome picture? So we know that marriage is more than just me and you. Last week we said with God in the middle, because God ordains. God has created, God has defined, God has ordained marriage. And Malachi, did you catch that? He did not make them one with a portion of his spirit in their union. That is a truth you need to chew on. Thank you, Lisa. (laughs) Chew harder. So there is something bigger in your marriage than just you and your spouse. Is that there's the blessing, there's this spirit in the middle of that union. And then it goes on and says, and what was the one God seeking? Why did God create marriage? 
Godly offspring, it says. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to his wife of your youth or to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, he covers his garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. What a word. You want to hear a word from God about marriage? Guard yourselves and be faithful in your marriage. Number four, the provision of divorce. The Bible does not require divorce. It regulates it. So just to be clear, when the exception clause is stated, if your spouse is unfaithful to you, you are not required to pursue divorce. Instead, the Bible seeks to regulate divorce as, as opposed to uh, the, the Pharisees were coming and what they're asking is, can, can we get divorced just for any reason? And the Bible says, no, we, God regulates divorce. There's one reason. That's for marital unfaithfulness. So just to be clear, the Bible does not require divorce and we'll talk more about this later in the sermon in just a few minutes because what we would invite is not a requirement to divorce, but a desire to want to restore your marriage. The passage for that is simply the, the passage from our text today about the Bible not requiring divorce. That's Mark 10, 4 to 5. They said Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, it's because of your hardness of heart that he wrote this commandment. So you see from Jesus' words that Divorce is not commanded. It's not required. But it is given as a gracious provision for when marriages go terribly, terribly wrong. And lastly, number five, Alex couldn't have started us off with a better text today from Exodus because the last point is God is merciful and forgiving. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. These are five verses, and there could be many more, but these give you an overarching understanding of marriage from the beginning to, I would say, the end. That is the end of a marriage. What happens if things go terribly wrong? And what happens if I have been the one who has offended and breaking covenant? Or what happens if the one who's, who's been offended? Well, that last verse of God being merciful and forgiving, of God being willing not only to forgive us, but also as a model for us to try to walk after and forgive our spouse. These are five verses that are, are in a sense, anchors for how we should think about marriage and divorce. So that's just a practical theology. If I were to say, walk away with this, Don't walk away with only a truth about divorce. Walk away today knowing that bigger picture. And if you only take away one truth, then uh, there's a whole foundation that we're building. One truth never stands in and by itself. We have to understand all that God is doing. And so let me invite you to embrace all five of those passages and not just focus in on verses 10, 11, and 12 that we talked about today. Now, I want to move forward. And I want to talk about grounds for biblical divorce because maybe the question in your mind is even listening to me, that seems rather limited, this idea of divorce 
only for marital unfaithfulness. So I want to move next to talk about grounds for biblical divorce. And I told you I want to talk about two explicit grounds for divorce. And then we want to talk about something that might be implicit. And I'll explain those words. So when I say explicit, there are things that the Bible makes absolutely fully clear. And that you don't need... There, there, there needs no... Uh, there's no further revelation. There's, there's no further uh, information that we're missing from scriptures to be able to understand God's clear will and plan. That's explicit. And then there's things that are implicit, and implicit is when something has to be, uh, something is implied, right? Have you ever thought, like, well, I'm talking to somebody, and of course they didn't say that. Hey, folks, that's all right. We have kids, and, and this is a part of our growth process. We just hope nobody is injured. Uh, and, and that's, we're going we're gonna to keep on going. We have, we have moms and dads taking care of things, and this is a part of who we are as a family, right? If you've had kids, then you know that happens. Um, all right, so um, explicit, implicit. Uh, I think I was telling you about implicit. Uh, Im- implicit, basically, when you think something, uh, it's not specifically stated, but you can imply it from the text, or you can imply it like, uh, yes, uh, I, I talked with so-and-so, and they didn't actually say that I was in the wrong, but their whole tone, their whole manner let me know they weren't very happy with me or, or the job that I had done, right? So that's kind of implied. They didn't say it. So you see the difference? Explicit is that it just told you. It's, it's straight, black and white. Here is God's word. Implicit is something that we, we would, uh, in a sense, be able to derive from the scriptures. So let me tell you the two. You already know the one. Exception principle. The Greek word that they use is porneia. It doesn't mean specifically adultery. It means sexual immorality in general. Now, when we come to the Old Testament, probably the book of Leviticus is more helpful than any other book to understanding what God intends to be holy and what is unholy. Uh, what God says is good and what is not good. Knowing that we have a lot of young listeners in our audience, let me just say it's for more than just adultery uh, between a man and a woman. So when the Bible talks about this idea, this sexual immorality, it can cover homosexuality. It, It actually covers bestiality, which Leviticus mentions by name. It's misusing sex. It covers when a, a father... Remember, we, we studied this uh, uh, actually a, a few weeks ago when we were looking at the Psalms. Uh, rem- remember Absalom. When Absalom uh, is trying to overthrow his father David, one of the first things he, de- he does after he comes into the city is he goes and he sleeps with his father's concubines. Why? Because it's forbidden is that a, a son should not be sleeping with his father's wives and a father should not sleep with his daughter-in-law. That's forbidden. That's another misuse. We can, we, you can really just start to connect the dots. So if it's, it's any kind of, of sexual fulfillment outside of marriage, that covers basically everything. And we can also, uh, in a sense, inference some of the things that happen in our world today that didn't happen back then. For example, we, ha- we live in the world of internet. We live in the world of being able to send pictures on phones. We live in the world of video on phones. You can imagine all of those are equal ways that we can abuse the gift of sexual intimacy. And so that's 
explicit. So the Bible says this word, porneia, which it doesn't mean only adultery. It means any misuse of this beautiful thing God designed for a covenant between one man and one woman. That clear? That's explicit. The second thing that maybe you're asking this question is, well, isn't there more? Well, Paul actually tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 to 16, there is another permissive or permission for, in a sense, divorce. And that is when, I won't read the whole text here. If you're interested, just make note. 1 Corinthians 7, 12 to 16. In this passage, Paul says, when you are in a marriage and your spouse is unbelieving, if they choose to leave you, Paul simply says, let it be so. Let it be so. That's his exact phrase. I won't give you the whole passage, but go ahead and read it for yourself. What Paul says is, and, and we don't know, he, Paul doesn't define the situation more. Well, we both claim to be believers, and I found out he or she wasn't. Or I came to faith later, and it was uh, something that my spouse wouldn't accept. We don't know any of the details. All we know is that Paul says very specifically that if there's an unbelieving spouse and they choose to want to leave the marriage, Paul simply says, let it be so. And then he actually says, because who knows whether you will uh, be able to win them to the faith. So if they want to leave you, Paul says, let it be so. I won't say anything more than that, because the more I unpack, the more I risk treading on waters that I shouldn't be treading on, right? So this is where the biblical principle of you guys need to take God at his word, read the scriptures for yourself, and there's one thing that needs to happen. When you read God's word and you believe it is God's, uh, his authoritative word written so that you would know him and enjoy him and follow him, you have a responsibility to begin to walk these things out. And you might be sitting there actually today and you're thinking, Sam, I don't know if I completely agree with you. Well, here's the deal. I am imperfect but I pray that I am faithful to the Scriptures. What I would pray is that you are faithful to the Scriptures. Read them, study them, study them, come to a conviction about what you understand God's Word to say, and live in obedience. So if, if as I'm preaching, you think, Sam seems judgmental. What I can tell you is, that could be true, if I preach the God's word in a way that is not correct, but if I preach it in a way that honors the meaning of the text, then I've done all that I can to be a faithful pastor to you. It's the same story as Malcolm, right? When I sit and I preach and I teach God's word, I recognize, I see faces, by the way, folks. I could see when it hurts, or I could see when you're angry. I'm a person just like you. But here's one thing we got to, here's a commitment as a pastor to his flock. I will do my best to faithfully preach and teach the word of God no matter what that will cost. And if you find a pastor who won't do that, you leave that church. That's a pastor with no conviction. What are you preaching and teaching? Everybody's opinions? You can go do that at any club you want. Not in the church of God. In the church of God, we preach and teach God's word. And that might sting, that might hurt, and it's okay, right? So it's okay if when I preach, you say, I don't know if I fully agree with that. Here's what I would encourage you. Paul, that happened to Paul. 
Paul would preach and the Bereans went home and they studied their scriptures to figure out that Paul actually preached the word of God. So it's not offensive to me if you say, I'm not sure. Go home, read your Bible, study the text. Here's what I need to know. At the end of the day, you've got to be faithful to God and I have to be faithful to God and we have to say, we believe your word matters, we believe it leads to life and we believe you've given it to us so that we would know you and walk in your ways. So, when you're sitting there and it hurts and you're not sure, that's fine, I get that. But don't reject it and don't reject me. Don't be angry at me for telling you the word of God. But here's the deal. I'll take it. I'm happy if we could have honest conversations about the things that make the most difference in life. Now let me move on. This is our last point this morning. What are other grounds for divorce? Oh, actually, I I lied. I got three and four. So here's what I'll just say about implicit. I gave you the explicit, right? Explicit from the text. Pornea and unbelieving spouse, 1 Corinthians. I'll tell you, here's the gray area. There are a number of cases of sin or unrepentant sin that can wreak havoc on a marriage. And the Bible doesn't speak specifically to any of those. So here's what I can tell you. There are many marriages who have dealt with abuse. Physical abuse. Mental, verbal abuse. There have been marriages that have dealt with criminal behavior. There have been marriages that have dealt with drug addiction, alcohol addiction, gambling addiction. Even these days, sadly enough, video game addiction, where you completely abandon your wife and kids for the joy of playing games on the internet. Sad but true. What I can tell you is all of those are sins, and all of those will affect the marriage just like pornea. Or sexual immorality will affect a marriage. And the best thing I can tell you is you need to be a part of a church who is willing to walk through those things with you. Because as a church, here's what the church is called to do. When a member of Jesus Christ's church is living in sin, the church is lovingly called to to call them to repentance. With the goal of restoration. But if that member does not respond or will not admit sin and will not turn from sin, then the scriptures tell us that what we do as a church is that we are to uh, treat that brother or sister as if they were a, no longer a follower of Jesus Christ. We're told to put them out of the church. And so if you are a believer, then you have a church who's supposed to walk alongside of you with all of those issues, a gambling issue, a pornography issue, an abuse issue. By the way, just on a separate uh, kind of uh, line of thinking, abuse, you always report this to the authorities. You secondly report it to your church, your pastors, and allow your pastors to help. Criminal uh, behavior, I would say, right? So there's, there's two parts. This is, I don't want to get too far off my sermon, but let's just say there's things that you first report to the authorities, Child abuse, physical abuse, uh, criminal behavior. But then you also walk alongside with your church and you bring that to the pastors and the elders and the elders deal with that. And the elders walk alongside of you and the elders will seek God's wisdom for you and your marriage. This is why I can't sit here and give you a, 
an answer for the implicit things. What I would say is you need to be a part of a church who will walk through that with you. And you need to not be making decisions based upon just by yourself. You need a, you need a cadre of godly men and women walking with you. So that's just what's implicit. Maybe you had questions about, well, what about all these other things? I'll put them all in one, one group and I'll just say, here's how sin can also affect a marriage. Yes, and they have just as much an effect as when we look at marital unfaithfulness. So lastly, let's end here. What if divorce is a part of my story? I'm just going to give you four things. So if divorce is a part of your story, that means you're in two camps. Either you're the one who committed the offense against the other. You're the one who was unfaithful in your marriage. Or you're on the other side. Maybe your spouse is unfaithful to you. Either way, the marriage has ended. And the question is, so what do I do now? Like, do I just get put on the junk pile? Like, I, so I, my marriage no longer counts? Or I don't have... A, a, a model of a story that I can share with others? What is my part to play in the church? What is my part to play in, in Jesus' mission? To use an analogy of the game, like I was in the game, but now I, I just, am I on the bench? Like I'm on the team still. Yeah, I'm staved. But I know that I actually can't do things for Christ because of my marriage. Well, let me just answer all of those with an emphatic No. And let me invite you this morning not to run from your story of divorce, but let me invite you to embrace it head on. And let's do that through four things. One, I want you to embrace God's good plan for marriage. So when I share last week and I preach this week about God's plan and intention for marriage of one man, one woman for one lifetime, I would invite you to embrace that good plan for marriage. It starts with that. And what I want to tell you is don't reject and don't reinterpret and don't redefine because it's not palatable to you right now. Let me invite you to embrace the good plan for marriage. The second thing I want you to do is I want you to seek God's forgiveness and the forgiveness of those you hurt. The second thing you need to do is you, you have to come to God's word, and if God's word says that this is God's plan for marriage and this is sin, the first thing you need to do if you're going to restore a relationship with God is to admit sin and to confess sin so that you can be healed. You don't, God doesn't heal your heart without a confession of sin. You don't get healed and restored by just continuing on and acting like it didn't happen. That was the illustration I gave earlier. What if I offended my wife? Well, I could go back and live and I can just start loving her and doing all kinds of good things, but there's this huge part that I never addressed. And so I would invite you, first of all, seek God's forgiveness. Second of all, seek the forgiveness of your spouse and seek the forgiveness of your children in an age-appropriate way. Talk to your kids about what happened. Don't run. Third thing I want you to do is receive and run in God's grace. There is no sin greater than God's ability and willingness to forgive. Thank you, Mark. And it's not just a funny thing. That's, that's an important 
truth for you to embrace. There is no sin greater than God's willingness and ability to forgive. Bring your brokenness to God's throne. Bring it to the cross and receive his forgiveness. It's why Jesus died for our sins. And lastly, I'm not actually going to stay there for a minute. I want you to know that divorce hasn't disqualified you from being a blessing, from ministering to others and participating in God's mission. You have a part to play in this church and you have a part to play in Jesus' mission. Because, now, I will tell you, sin does leave a mark. You clip a bird's wings, it won't fly as high. That's the truth. Sin has a mark. It does leave a mark, but it doesn't mean that you can't participate, and it doesn't mean that you can't be a part of Jesus' mission and God's church. So you need to hear both. That your sin will leave a mark on you and others, and it may even disqualify for you for some positions in the church. That's just the facts. But it also doesn't relegate you to the trash bin you have an important part to play. And number four is one of, I think, the most overlooked is ask for God to use you to minister to others. If the statistics are real and true, which we know and believe they are, more than half of the people in the world experience divorce. So ask God to use your life and your brokenness and your story to minister and be a blessing to others. You understand people's pain in a way that others never will. You understand that process of brokenness. You might understand that process of restoration. You might understand the process of my spouse was unfaithful, but by God's grace, 10 years later, our marriage is even stronger. And I wanted to give up so bad. And I had a hard time even thinking I could forgive. Or your story might be in the other side. is My marriage broke up. We're both remarried. We both have a split family and our kids are in the middle. But here's what's also in the middle. God's grace and my messed up broken life because anyone can receive God's forgiveness and anyone can be healed and anything that is broken can be healed and restored by God's grace. And oftentimes the stories of God's restoration so far excel the stories of our brokenness that we don't have words to properly account for a God who can take our broken lives and through Jesus Christ, his son, to heal them to a place where they're healthier, where they're more loving, and where our impact for the kingdom is even greater for those who might be going through something similar to me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we embrace your word that we find here in Mark. We believe it is true. We believe it is good. We believe it is right. And we ask that whatever was communicated in this sermon that rightly and correctly and authoritatively teaches your truth, we ask that you would bless God, if there's any way that in communicating that I have not been faithful to your word, we pray that you would take what is said and you would drive people to your word and you would convict them based upon what you have said 
that is good and right and true. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.